0: Luke chapter 10, verses 38 to chapter 11, verse 4. Allow me to read. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care? that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. One day, Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us. And lead us not into temptation. And this is God's word. You know, meals have a way of bringing out different dimensions in each person different dimensions of warmth and love. It also has a way of bringing out agendas. When people are together in a business meeting, a business meal, uh, although you want to share warmth, there is an agenda. And you can see the agendas kind of play out. Other people, meals are incredibly intimate experiences. But it has a way, whenever you have people coming together and experiencing uh, a meal together, especially uh, an evening meal together, you see the tensions. The closer you are, you can often see tensions in a meal because they're so intimate. And you learn a lot about people through the context of these meals. In the Bible, there are many meals And at each one of these meals, teach us something special about the character of God, about the character of Christ. And in this meal, you see Martha, a friend of Jesus, trying to serve, and yet Jesus rebukes her. She's rebuked because she's working. And it seems really harsh if you think about it, because she's trying to serve, but there are three things that we're going to learn. There are three things that this passage teaches us about what it means then to have a personal relationship with Christ. A personal relationship with Jesus. One, it means uh, that you have a radical new agenda. Two, a radical new joy. And three, because you have a radical new intimacy. A radical agenda, a joy, and an intimacy with Jesus. That's what this meal is going to teach us as we dine with the king today. First, a radical agenda. Verse 38, Jesus, he, she, he comes home to the home of uh, Martha and Mary. And you have to understand that an invitation like that is very involved because to host someone in an evening meal is to share the most intimate part of the day with that person. There was no electricity in those days, so basically you came home after work, and it was an agrarian culture, so you worked the field, you came home, and after you came home, you prepared this elaborate meal if you're hosting somebody, and really because it turns dark, the meal ends. And you really shared the most intimate part of your day with that person. It's very costly. Meals like this, very costly. Uh, The food, difficult to prepare. A lot of money would go into it. Lots of work. Mary was clearly working with Martha, as we read in this text. But then she, at some point, leaves to go sit with Jesus at his feet. Jesus is teaching. Verse 39 says, she sat at the feet of Jesus, listening to what he said. In those days, rabbis would sit and teach as the disciples would gather around. And so here's Jesus sitting, and he's teaching, and Mary's sitting and listening. And it's remarkable because in those days, rabbis only taught women. Rabbis, rabbis never, never taught women. They, they only taught men. Women had no social standing in that context. And so what this tells you here, even in this context, Mary, under this great rabbi, Mary has a place. Mary is accepted mary is known mary is loved mary is valued and because she knew that she's loved she didn't just stay in the kitchen so to speak she didn't just adhere to a society set of women back then she was able to transcend that she went to be with jesus she went to be taught by jesus incredibly remarkable and it provides a very beautiful picture of biblical femininity courage transcending social standing and yet, biblical humility. She's sad and she's submissive to Jesus. She's listening to Jesus. And biblical wisdom. She knew to discern. She knew the difference between something that was urgent, the meal, and something that was important, sitting with Jesus. Now, you have to think about this. Mary, she wasn't trying to start a movement, right? She wasn't trying to start a movement. She had priorities, She was living those priorities out, and yet, thousands of years later, we're still talking about Mary. We're still talking about Mary. Lots of influential people in this room. It's hard for me to believe that a thousand years from now, the world will still be talking about any of us. And yet, here's Mary, no social standing, a woman in that context, in that culture. Not the most uh, wealthy of women in that context, in that culture, and yet, We're still learning from her. The gospel radically transcends cultural, social, uh, contextual agendas. If you look at the history of the church, the history of the church is marked by tremendous acts of empathy during the darkest periods of history. At a time during the great plagues, when everybody was leaving the city, because in the city, people are living in a compact way. They're living consolidated in a compact context. During the Great Plagues, the best thing to do is to live apart from each other, to be separated. And yet, Christians, it was the Christians who were flooding into the city without any experience nursing people back to health and in turn getting sick and paying at the cost of their lives. They remember Jesus, who values the least of those in society. And it gave them the confidence to abandon things that were urgent, their health, their safety, for what was most important. Why? Because it was a radical confidence. And the radical confidence came because there was a radical joy. That's the second uh, point. They were to transcend a radical agenda because of a radical confidence, which, which really was driven by joy. In this text, Jesus, he makes a special trip to see Martha. You know, you see over and over in the Bible, Jesus loved Martha. Jesus loved Mary. Jesus loved Lazarus, who was her brother. And he loved this family, particularly Martha. Martha was a leader. Martha was a doer. Martha was a thinker. She was very practical, very tactical. She's a great manager. Ancient meals are incredibly, uh, such an ordeal uh, because of the time and the money and the prep time uh, and the preparation involved. But Martha, she's doing this beautiful thing for Jesus Christ. A beautiful thing for this cause. He loves Jesus, but she gets rebuked. Jesus actually rebukes her. And he doesn't rebuke her because he says, oh, Martha, you're living a very worldly life. That's not what he says. He rebukes her because she's doing ministry. He rebukes her because she's doing ministry, because she's serving. She's serving. But Jesus says, Martha, you're distracted. Mary was serving. But she leaves to sit with Jesus. But Martha's service actually gets in the way of being with Jesus. And she's frustrated. And this passage teaches us that she, she's in this condition because she's not doing what Mary's doing. Jesus says, Mary has, has, do, has done one thing, the better thing. You see, to have a, a, a terrible meal experience back then, when you're inviting somebody and you're playing the role of host, back then in this shame-based culture, to have a terrible meal is a terrible reflection of your home, an incredible embarrassment to your home. And so here's Martha, impromptu, invites Jesus in, and now she's rushing, and she's working, and she's preparing, and she's serving, and things have to be on the go, and she's commanding and take, make, making orders, and, and she, she wants to prevent her family from being embarrassed, and so she's stressed, and she's frustrated and she sees Mary go off to sit at the feet of Jesus and they're having an incredible time an incredible moment together and she's frustrated so what does she do she comes out and she makes two comments and those two comments are really two pleas and those two pleas really show us what's going inside Mary's heart Martha's heart verse 40 first Lord do you not care that's what she asks Jesus and second tell Mary tell her to help me Lord, do you not care? Tell her to help me. First, Lord, do you not care? Martha's saying, don't you notice, Jesus? Don't you see? I'm working. She's working to gain Jesus' attention, to earn a relationship with Jesus through her work. And, And, you know, if she gets the attention, then I'm noticed, then I feel good. But she's working. And so her work is not really for Jesus, but for herself. It's for a sense of worth. That's for a sense of purpose, significance. Don't you care? She's begging Jesus. Don't you see me? Notice me. Acknowledge me. See me. Care for me. Love me. When you're not noticed, in that context, when you're not noticed, you start to feel insecure. You start to feel anxious. When you're overlooked, you start to get angry. Bitterness over years start to develop. Jealousy. I'm doing all the work here. When you're rebuked, you feel lost. You feel empty. You say, gosh, don't you notice me? Don't you see my heart? And now, you're, now I'm empty. It makes you anxious about, uh, about the work, but then it makes you tired because you're not noticed. It, ma- it makes you feel alone when you're rebuked. You see what's going on here? Jesus, he sees that, and he speaks to her. Jesus actually responds, and he says, Martha, Martha, you're worried about too many things. You're insecure. You feel inadequate. You're always unsure about where you stand. And you want to know why it's because if you're thinking, if I live a good life, then God will notice me. If I serve and work hard, then I will be noticed. Then I will be blessed. Then what you're really saying is, God owes me because I'm living a good life. God owes me because I'm, living, because I'm doing my part. I'm, I've done my part. Now, if you're doing this in a church, you're going to be joyless. That is a recipe for disaster because you're going to be joyless. You're going to be anxiety written. You start to gossip because you feel more deserving than other people. That's what happens. That's the first thing. The second thing he, sa- he says is, tell her to help me. Tell Mary to help me. Martha's pointing at Mary. You know what? It's not like Mary is out like running errands. Mary's right there. She's coming out of here and she says, listen, I'm doing all the work here. This girl goes over there and she defies my orders, younger sister. She's going there and helping. Tell her to help me. Don't you see what's going on here? Tell her to help me. She's comparing herself with Mary. She thinks she's superior to Mary because she's the one that does the work, because she's the one that knows what needs to get done. Don't you see? Don't you see? That's what she's saying. Mary's right there and Martha's speaking about her directly. In those days and in ancient Middle Eastern culture, you were much less sensitive to people who are younger than you. And so the younger person is at your beck and call, and the younger person, you can just speak about them. A lot of parents, they, you know, in front of their children, just talk about them, tell stories about them. It's not like the kids don't know. They know. They're like, I'm right here. I can hear everything. And, but the thing is, that's what the culture was like. And so here she's basically calling Mary out and saying, here's Mary, she's at she's no value in this house right now. Tell her to help me. Martha believes she's earned God's favor because she works hard but it didn't give her joy it actually made her angry it made her angrier she was doing it for intimacy she was doing it for honor and didn't give her intimacy and it didn't give her honor meanwhile you have mary who's helping her out at one point but leaves what is urgent and goes towards what is important and she sits at the feet of jesus and she's learning Martha is working to be seen because of her sacrifice, but there's no intimacy. And there's, as a result, there's no joy, and she's bitter. And here's the difference then between religion and the gospel. Mary is working, and she left her work because she has intimacy. She's able to put her working, put it down, because she knows she's valued and loved. But Martha is using Jesus to get worth. He's using the knowledge to get work, to get worth. He's using the work and the serving to get worth. One person is working to get a relationship. The other person is left the work because she has a relationship. And so she can leave her work behind. The work doesn't define her. The other per- person, you know, religion is outside in. It's outside in. What we we're saying is I have to live right, I have to serve well, I have to do all the right things in order to be acceptable to God. And as a result, your work drives your joy. That's what happens. If you live like that, you're always working. You're constantly working. We have a lot of overworked people in our generation because of that. You think, you're thinking that you're, you're working. If I just work and strive, and then, then it's going to increase my options, and it's going to increase my potential, it's going to increase my joy. But what happens is, in actuality, it decreases your options, it decreases your potential, and it decreases your joy. The irony is that it's in the context of a meal. Meals are meant to be so intimate. Meals are meant to be so special. You're you're inviting somebody in who's close to you, and in that context, meals are supposed to be, it's supposed to be relational and personal. And here's Martha, so distant. And she feels the distance, and she feels the chasm. And she says, I'm alone here. I'm alone. She's crying out, I'm alone. I'm empty. I'm not noticed. I'm not valued. And she's working to get it. Don't you see this, Jesus? That's religion. Some of us here right now in this context You have an agenda with God. You have assumptions about yourself. And you have assumptions about Jesus in a way. The gospel is inside out. I'm accepted and I'm loved. And based on that, I have a desire to serve. And as a result, your joy drives your work. Look at Mary. She just leaves. She just sits she transcends all the social trends. What a woman's supposed to be doing is supposed to stay in the kitchen in this context. She just wants to learn and she is gonna sit among men and learn. Incredible, remarkable confidence. Because there's a remarkable joy, Remarkably, She says, you know what, I don't care what my sister's gonna say. The disciples are looking around and I'm like, well, what's this person doing here? You know, and she says, No, I'm just gonna learn. I'm gonna learn. And Jesus honors that. Jesus affirms that. How do you get that? How do you get that kind of confidence? to bug social trends with that kind of agenda? How do you get that kind of joy to be able to leave your work behind? You need a radical intimacy. Mary had the relationship. Mary paid attention. Mary was focused. Mary listened. What did she listen to? If you think about it, first, before we even get into that, look at the gentleness of Jesus. You know, he rebukes Martha and it seems harsh, but you have to look at really the way he's saying what he's saying and what he's saying. Because what he's really doing is he's counseling Martha. We read this and we say, gosh, you know, Martha's trying to, to, to cook for Jesus, really, right? And, and here's Jesus kind of, it sounds like he's being harsh, but he's really speaking into her heart. Because what he could have said was, you know, Martha, you're very foolish. You're a very foolish woman. You know, you think you're cooking up a meal for me. You have no idea who I am or what I'm about to do for you. But instead, he knows Martha's hurt, and Martha's empty, and Martha's alone. You know, Martha's saying, I'm not seen. So what does he do? He sees her, and he counsels her. And in response, he says two things. Martha says two things. Jesus says two things. First, he says, Martha, you know, first he starts out, and this is not even, this is the beginning of the first thing. He says, Martha, Martha. Now, whenever you read that in the Bible, uh, ancient Hebrew, uh, anytime you see in this Hebrew culture the doublet, and you see this all over the Bible, the doublet, when you, especially in the context of someone's name, is intended to magnify. So, for instance, in Psalm 51, you have King David who had uh, committed adultery and really had one of his best friends murdered, conspired against one of his best friends to cover up this adultery. And... Uh, uh, he, he's praying a prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. And what does he say? He says, against you, you, I have sinned. He's crying, he's weeping, he's repentant, he's moved. Uh, later on uh, in 2 Samuel, there's a civil war going on against King David. His own son is conspiring against him, Absalom. And actually, Absalom is, is, is finally, he's, he dies. Absalom has fallen. And so at the end, uh, at the culmination of this civil war, David is holding his son as he is dead. And he says, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. He's weeping. He's crying. He's crying out about Absalom. You have Jesus in the New Testament, just as he's uh, really preparing to die. He's standing out and he's looking at the city of Jerusalem and he's in tears. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you would know. He's weeping. He's crying out. And here now, he's looking at Martha. He says, Martha, Martha. So really, he's crying. He's moved. So it's not like he's rebuking her. He's counseling her. He's saying, Martha, I understand. We're going to get to that. I understand. He's, He's got emotional content. He loves Martha. He feels for Martha. Look at the gentleness of Jesus. Look at the patience of Jesus. Look at the love and the compassion and the mercy of Jesus. He never overworks you. He never overworks you, and he's constantly gentle, always gentle, ever patient. He says two things to Martha, two things. First, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. You are worried and upset. He says, to be worried, the word worried here is to be torn to pieces. He says, Martha, you're being torn apart here. You're all over the place. You have pieces all over the place. He says, you're upset about many things. The word upset, it's, it's the connotation of a boat that's really supposed to be uh, right side up, that's capsized, capsized because of a storm. He says, Martha, right now you're in a storm and you're, and you're all over the place. There's a tornado, a hurricane in the storm and your boat, you're like a boat, you've capsized and you have no motor. You have a motor but it's upside down and so you're working and you're spinning and you're spinning and you're spinning and you're not going anywhere. And you're just being tossed around by the storm and you're so upset and you're so anxious. A lot of us are like that. We're just spinning. We're just working. And you realize the reason why we work so hard, it's because you want the approval of your boss. But why do you need the approval of your boss? It's a cosmic thing. It's a spiritual thing because then I feel approved. Then I feel significant. Then I feel known. Then I'm noticed. That's how we act. That's how we are. Because it's a cosmic thing. Because we're endlessly going to work. You're going to work to please your children. You're going to work to make sure you're perfect, your children are perfect so that you can please other people with your children. You're going to constantly be working. You're going to work to get a spouse. You're going to work to appease your spouse. All of life is about acceptance because we're looking for the ultimate acceptance that comes from the Father. And so Jesus here, he's saying, Martha, I see you. And you were tossed around And you're worried and you're upset. And you've fallen apart. You're torn to pieces and you're like this boat without a motor because you're upside down and you're tossed by the waves in the storm and there's no power. You're not going anywhere. He says, Mary has chosen one thing, the only thing that matters. But you've chosen so many other things and now it's torn you to pieces. And you're all over the place and you're pulled in all these different directions. And you're acting like a leader but you're really a slave. There's this inner capsizing that's taking place in your heart, and that's why you have no power, and that's why you have no motor, and that's why you have no joy. You know, when you're cooking, when you're in the kitchen, you're cooking, there's this cadence. You know, and so if you watch the Food Network, uh, Food Network, I understand it's scripted. And the person, it t- tremendous amount of thought work that comes into putting one of these episodes together. 30 minutes. You watch any of these episodes. A lot, no one goes in there and they're just randomly making things and being on TV. You think it's easy, but it's, they make it look easy. What happens is there's a cadence. They put, they're preparing one thing, and as they're preparing one thing, there's another thing that's on the pan. And there's another thing that's in the oven, and there's this cadence. And so they're so effortless because they're smiling at you, and they're talking to you, they say, oh, isn't that beautiful? They're smelling the food, they're t- they say, oh, it tastes so good. We're going to put this in the oven now. We're going to take this thing out, and then we're going to add some more ingredients. And they make it look so easy, and you're like, well, I could do that. They make you feel like, well, I could do that. They give you power. There's strength there, right? Well, this person has such control and such poise. There's no storm. You ever try to cook like that in your own kitchen? You're like a boat that's been capsized and the waves going and you're running around and you're like, oh my gosh, I forgot to get this. Okay, can, you, can, you, can, you, can you pick this up for me? And you're running around and, and, you know, and then you taste and you're like, this doesn't taste the way, the way it's supposed to taste and you're running. That's what happens, right? Um, that's what Jesus is saying here. Mary is content. Martha, who's doing the work, is unhappy because she decided that she has to be perfect in order to get noticed. All of our service, her service, all of our work, her work, that's the non-negotiable that she has to be seen. And as a result, there's no cadence, just a storm. Everything's urgent. She's become a slave. The second thing that Jesus says to her is Mary chose what is better. In other words, look at Mary resting in me. You know why? Because I don't overwork you. I'm not going to make you work. If you understand me, Martha, because I understand you, if you understand me, I will never make you work to gain my approval because you can't. I'm here to give you rest. Martha's here saying, I'm not heard. Jesus says, rest in me. You're heard. And here's why I didn't answer your request, Martha. You know, here's why I'm not going to make Mary go work with you. It's not because you're not working hard enough. It's not because I'm disappointed in you. Listen to me. Mary sat and she listened. Every time you see Mary in the Bible, she's just sitting and listening to Jesus. It's a pattern. It's not just in this text. To be at someone's feet is to be sitting under their authority. And there's a psalm that says, Behold, I will make your enemies, your enemies a footstool for my feet. Why? Because to sit at someone's feet, tribute kings would come to the sovereign king and they would lay at their feet. And bow at their feet. It's to say, I'm submissive to your authority. And that's why these rabbis would teach, and people would be sitting or standing at his feet. To be at someone's feet is to be submissive. Mary's not just listening. Mary is understanding. She's processing. She's submitting. Mary's submitting. She's focused. She's coming to Jesus because she desires more of Jesus. There's no agenda. She just wants more of Jesus. Now, some of us, uh, we have a hard time with doing that because we just need to serve. We're doers. I, I, Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENFJ. I'm a doer. So we need to develop. We need to learn. We need to lead. We always have to have some sort of activity while you're watching TV. You have to be doing something. We're always doing something here. Remember, this is the same Mary, right? This is the same Mary that later on pours perfume at Jesus' feet. She, John chapter 12, she comes in. She pours perfume at Jesus' feet. Again, the disciples have no idea what's going on. She's at his feet. And she, not this time around. She goes grand scale. She, takes, she lets down her hair and wipes Jesus' feet with her glory, with her femininity. She just wipes his feet. That's what she's doing, always at his feet, always submissive. The disciples are rebuking her. Jesus says, she, leave her alone. She's done a beautiful thing for me. She's preparing for my burial. Mary's always at his feet no one else gets it but jesus has been constantly telling people that he would die the reason why the disciples didn't get it at first the reason why the scholars didn't get it the reason why the religious people didn't get it but mary did why because she's always at his feet and she's listening and she's processing and she's submitting the other people they and it's a lot like us we run jesus through our interpretation of the world we're running jesus through our grid but not Mary. Mary is running her life through the perspective of Christ. And she's getting it. And Jesus says, until the end of time, what she did will not be forgetting, f- forgotten. Submit to the word of God. Submit to the word of God. We have to listen and hear the word of God and submit to the word of God. Now, why today? If you think about it today, um, I bet you there's not a single person in this room who will sit, even the young ones are going to sit here and they're going to say, you know, 10 years ago, um, I was really foolish. I was a fool. You can kind of laugh at yourself. You look at the things that you were doing back then, 10 years ago, the things that you thought, the things that you thought were important 10 years ago, and you say, gosh, I was so foolish. 10 years from now, you're going to look back at yourself, and you're going to say, I was so foolish. You know what that means? Right now, you are a fool. That's what that means. Right now, we're foolish. Our view of the Bible Our view of Christ, Jesus Christ, today will mature and grow. It's going to mature. It's going to become fuller. So you can't hold, if you're skeptical in the church today, you can't hold too strongly to your objections. You can't hold too strongly to your skepticism because 10 years from now, you're going to look back and you're going to think about the things that you thought about you're going to say, gosh, I was so foolish. Don't run the Bible through your grid. Second, think about it. Even Jesus submitted to the Word of God. Jesus is teaching Martha, right? Jesus is teaching Martha. Martha is angry, right? Jesus is teaching her. And he's bringing Martha back in. And he's saying, you know, without me, Martha, there's no meal. There's no purpose for the meal. There's no reason to celebrate. There will be no joy and there will be no intimacy. Focus on what is important. Martha's sitting here, I'm not noticed. And Jesus is saying, Martha, Martha, I get you. I understand you. He's weeping and he's saying, I get you, I understand you. I love you and I value you. You are heard. You know why? Because what Jesus is saying is, I understand. You feel like you're not noticed. You feel like you're doing all the work and you're not noticed. I understand. I know what it means to work. I know what it means to do it absolutely perfectly and not be noticed. Because I'm going to be the one that will do it for you. I came for that. Immediately after this passage, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. Verses 1 to 4 of chapter 11. Listen to the prayer. If you read the prayer, you know what? I'm just going to read the prayer for us here. When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. If you've listened to that prayer, he, say, he starts on. and says, Father, our Father. It's a community, it's a, it's a very, he, he's looking at God and he's saying, I want you to be intimate with the Father. I want you to be submissive to the Father and intimate as he is your Father. That's how you should pray. Because a fa- what's a Father? A Father loves you unconditionally. A father cannot look at you and say, you know what? From t- as of today, I will no longer be your father. I will disown you. I have to be dis- disconnected from you. I will divorce myself from you. You can't do that. A father can't do that because he will always be your father. He bore you. In God, as our father, it means you have a status. In God, you are an heir. He wants to have an intimacy with him as our father. In the Muslim faith, there are 400 words to describe and define who God is. None of those words define him as Father. Jesus Christ, in the only prayer he teaches us to pray, pray, says, I want you to see God as Father. That kind of intimacy. Through every trial, through every suffering, through every need, Jesus depended on the Father. Even though he didn't have a home, he was homeless. He said, you know, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest, on his, rest his head. This is the Son of God who came to earth, and he has no home, and yet depended on the Father. Always depending on the Father. Mary had a place. Mary had a place. She had a home, but she had a place in Jesus. But Jesus, even Jesus didn't have a home. His whole life, and the moment he was born, he was born in a manger. Why? It was going to demonstrate the kind of suffering he would endure he was born in a manger lots of mangers in the world very typical very few thrones jesus was born in a manger and from that point on suffering and yet in mark chapter 1 as jesus is being baptized the heavens opened up, the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and God said in his own voice, This is my son with whom I am pleased. He's loving the son. He's doting on the son. He, he says, My son is acceptable. He is accepted. He has a place. But immediately after, what happens? Suffering. He goes into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he's tempted. And in the wilderness, he's tormented by the devil. And what is he doing? What do you see? Do you see him complaining? Do you see him angry? Do you see him bitter? 40 days he went without food. Do you see him bitter, complaining? No. You know what he says? He's quoting scripture. Three times he's tempted. Three times he's tormented. Each time he responds with a submission to scripture. Man does not live by bread alone, he says. He doesn't say, I'm hungry, don't you see me? Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Always submissive to scripture. It is written, it is written, you see him say. Jesus, each time, look at the faithfulness of Christ. Look at the commitment of Christ. Look at the love of Christ. Look at the dependence of Christ in his father. All the way to the cross, you know, even on the journey to the cross, there are people that are weeping for him. And what does Jesus do? He says, yes, I'm hurting, the pain, the pain. No, that's not what he does. He quotes to them Hosea in their weeping all the time, all the way in his journey to the, to the cross, still submissive, always submissive with his word. And then he's on the cross. And there he experiences the ultimate wilderness, the ultimate homelessness. And he cries out and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What he's saying is, now I am unnoticed. I'm working, I'm sweating, I'm bleeding. I'm toiling and I'm laboring. Don't you see me working? And yet I am unnoticed. I'm overlooked. I'm forsaken. I'm truly empty. Now I'm empty. Now I'm alone. That's what he's saying. The wrath of God is being poured out on Christ on the cross. You know, Martha, he says, I'm alone. Jesus is struggling. He's barely trying to catch a breath. He's slaving and he's working. He says, no, I'm going to just suck it up. I'm going to take it all in. There's a hymn, one of my favorite hymns. We don't sing these hymns anymore because they're so old. But one of my favorite hymns It says, Jesus drank the dregs of God's wrath. The dregs are those little pieces left in the tea that still have a little bit of potency. What the hymn is saying is Jesus on the cross, he's saying more, more, more. Give it all to me. I want it all. And he's sucking out the dregs of God's wrath until it's all done, until he can say it is done. Finished. He says, I'm going to work and work more, more. Give it all to me. I need it all. He's struggling. And he says, I'm going to do it alone. And he's saying, I'm alone. I have been forsaken even by God. You know, the cross is the one place where Jesus doesn't call God his father. And yet, do you see? He still says, my God. He still calls him my God. He doesn't turn away from God. He says, even though God has turned away, he says, my God. Do you know he's quoting from Psalm chapter 22? The first verse of Psalm chapter 22, if you look at the Psalm and the things that he says, it has the elements of my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It has the elements of I am thirsty. It has the elements of into your hands I commit my spirit. Down to his death, Jesus submisses to the Father and his word. Quoting scripture, worshiping on the cross in his suffering, and in his need, and in his emptiness. That kind of contentment. You know, Hebrews chapter 4 says it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. That meant that even as he was on the cross, suffering and in pain, there was not one hint of anger or bitterness or jealousy or pride. People are mocking and spitting him. God has turned his face away, and he says... I'm satisfied. I'm satisfied. What was he satisfied with? What gave him the joy? I mean, on the cross, he's weeping. My God, my God. You see the doublet again. There's emotional content and weeping, and yet it was tears of joy as well. You know what gave him that joy? Isaiah 53 which is one of the most prophetic psalms, uh, poems about Jesus Christ and his death, it says that he will be satisfied in his suffering when he looks out and sees the many who will be saved as a result. Jesus' joy on the cross, when his father is turned away, his body is being ripped apart, his soul is being capsized, and he basically says, I, into your hands I commit my spirit. In other words, I've given up my power. I have no more power. His joy was you. That was his joy. That's what kept him going. It was love that kept him on that cross, his love for you. Jesus was rejected so that you would be accepted. Jesus was working so that you could be at rest. Jesus was in unrest. His soul was in turmoil so that you could have peace. Jesus, the Father, turned away from him and disowned him so that you could be his children. When you look at what Mary did, he went, she went to be with Jesus. She saw it, she got it. She said, gosh, why don't I get it? It's because you're working and you're not sitting you're working when you should be sitting. Look at the greatness of what's going on here. The love of Christ, the beauty of Christ, who was rejected so that we could be seen, so that we could be treasured and valued. Will you this week take the time in the midst of everything that's urgent, everything that's urgent, will you take the time to look to Christ Focus on Christ. Trust in Christ. Don't just trust in Christ. Trust his word. Don't just believe in him. Believe him. Trust his word. That's the key to joy. That's the key to courage. That's the key to boldness. A boldness that will transcend society so that you will then radically be generous, radically be giving, radically be sacrificing, radically be loving of one one to another. Can you commit to that this week? Can you reflect on Christ and his love and his mercy for you? That was his joy. And when you, when you see that you are his joy, what kept him on the cross, he will become your joy. And then others around you will become your joy. And you will have joy and it will overflow and you will love Christ and you will love his people and you will serve. You will have a joy that drives your work. Can you commit to that this week? Let's pray.